0: Today's teaching text comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then 10 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it.
1: Yes. Okay. Now if I can clip it back on. So we had lockers next to each other, you know, all the things. And back in middle school at the time, we used to have these monthly dances. I don't know if anybody had dances, whatever, right? Okay. So picture this. We get to the end of the school year. It's the last dance of the year, the last monthly school dance of the year. It's the last song of the last dance of the year, right? Okay, all right, y'all are tracking, okay. And it's like, this is the moment, right? Like, it's like suddenly, I don't know, it's like the Red Sea parting. (laughs) And the song, Endless Love by Luther Vandross and Mariah Carey, two of the greatest vocalists of all time, in case you're not aware, It comes on and I'm like yes okay and so he asked me to dance we assume the middle school dancing position the classic the quintessential and we proceed to have the slowest slow dance ever on earth I mean I think we're moving like to endless love (laughs) time stood still truly And um, if you're wondering maybe like what happened next in my story with Nick, um, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the school year ended, we moved on to the same high school, but somehow my endless love did not continue on, (laughs) and it just all disappeared and went into thin air. So now when I think back on my 14-year-old self, that multi-year crush was a pretty big deal, right? Like there were moments where I was like, could this be real love that I am feeling for Nick and his tore-up Nikes. I mean, he just had no style whatsoever. Now today, many years later, I've lived long enough and had enough experiences to know that love is so much more than what I experienced in eighth grade. But as I reflected on that story and on that time, side note, my husband and I ran into Nick in the Chicago airport like six years ago, he and his wife. It was awkward. Anyway, (laughs) reflecting on that time, it has me thinking about how easily we can all kind of miss the mark when we think about what love truly is. And you all are in this Advent series. You started off talking about peace last week, and I am just very grateful that I get to talk about love today. But with love being this word that gets thrown around left and right, and used in a ton of different ways, I I really do think it's important that we spend some time today making sure we have the right picture of love according to God and his word. In fact, I'm confident enough to jump out and say that understanding this concept of God's love is, in fact, the most important thing we can do. And why do I say that? Well, because Jesus himself that he's the ultimate trump card y'all so it's him who said it he says if we we see this account in Matthew 22 starting in verse 35 Jesus is being questioned by a group of religious leaders and in verse 35 one of the leaders tested Jesus with a question he says teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law Jesus replied love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love. Love. How God loves us, how we love God, how we love others is critical to our understanding. Now, From the outset, I know it's tough to talk about love because we all have different experiences that we've walked in here with. So I first want to get us all on the same page when we talk about the word love, and then I wanna spend some time looking at that passage that Russell already read for us this morning. Throughout history, society has defined love in a couple of different ways. First, there's storge, which means affection, and it's a beautiful thing, uh, but if that is the totality of your definition of love, it will fail you. Like, I can remember uh, when my children, beautiful, beautiful children were born, uh, and when I first saw them, it was like this incredible experience. Uh, But any parent with children will tell you that At three o'clock in the morning, when that child is screaming, or when they're having a tantrum about putting on the socks that are already on their feet, or whatever the thing is, that affection often wanes. If you're going to be in a relationship, you're going to need way more than affection. Affection is what I felt for Nick as a 14-year-old, but that kind of affection, that kind of love is not all there is, because... The fact is, just like with Nick, that affection was here one day, and gone the next. Sometimes affection is even here one minute, and gone the very next. There's no way affection alone can carry us through the difficult seasons of life. We need something bigger. The next kind of love we've seen throughout history is phileo, which is friendship love. Um, This is brotherly love, and we can even find it referenced in scripture. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, that to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves. And phileo, really, it occurs from bonding over similar interests, right, when we have commonality. So while lovers are both preoccupied with each other, friends are preoccupied with the same things. When I think about my group chats with my closest girlfriends, we're sending out the new album from the artist that we all love, or we're sending out a podcast episode about the thing that we're interested in. Now, of course, friends care for one another in other ways, but it's similar interests that tie them together. And honestly, when I think about one of the things that can often rob us, people in, from deep, meaningful relationships in church, it's that We sometimes say, I can't build a relationship with that person because we have nothing in common. Um, And what they're really saying is that, like, I'm not really interested in serving the other, in building with the other, in thinking about the other. I need to find myself in them in order to love them. So the last kind of love that's very common is eros, and this means romance. This is um, what I feel for my husband when he does the dishes. Um, No, but seriously, I think I do feel that when he does the dishes. But seriously, when I think we think about Hollywood and the images that we get, you know, our experience of love is also often painted as this explosive infatuation with another person. But if our pursuit is romance all the time, we're going to be sorely disappointed. I mean, because who can maintain something like that? Who can maintain that kind of energy through all the highs and lows of life? I've met with, in the course of working in ministry for the past seven years, a lot of couples who might say, we're just not in love anymore. And what they're actually saying is, we just don't have romance anymore, which is a completely different thing. As if romance should have been the goal the whole time um, my husband and i we have this unique love story in that both of us were married in our 20s and actually widowed in our 20s as well before we met years later uh, my husband passed away my first husband passed away from a motorcycle accident and his late wife passed away from a very rare form of cancer actually virgil abloh if anyone knows the famous designer from louis vuitton they had this very similar, they had the same cancer, which is extremely rare. We're talking one in 10 cases a year kind of thing. Um, And Jordan though, he talks about how uh, it was not until Danielle's illness that he truly understood real love. So when the shared experiences were no longer possible, going out for dinners and going on Instagram worthy trips were no longer a possibility when you know there was no more romance really to be had because she was ill, that's when they found deep abiding love. That's when he felt like he loved her more than he ever actually had. So we've talked about Storge, we've talked about Philia, we've talked about Eros, how they come short. None of those is truly what scripture captures and what I wanna talk about today. Scripture uses the word agape. And I want to define that for all of us so we're on the same page. Agape isn't born just out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will and as a choice. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. So getting this definition of agape into our heads into our hearts is profound because when I stop and think about it, I think when I'm honest, and maybe some of you are like me, part of the reason I struggle to feel like God truly loves me, while that's not just like another Christianese saying, but something that seeps deep into my being, is because when I hear the word love, I tend to think about affection. But then I look at the things that I've done the things that I've said, the things that I didn't do, the things that I didn't say. And I think, how could God have affection for me, especially in times when I don't even like me? Or maybe sometimes we fear that God loves the way we do. As we live in this cancel culture where love is not based on a person's choice, but Does another person measure up and do all the right things in order to earn approval and acceptance and love? The Bible tells us something wholly different, that God loves you because he chose to love you. It has nothing to do with affection. It has nothing to do with similar interests. It has nothing to do with romance. It's his choice. So I want to read again... This passage from John 1 that Russell read for me, um, because I believe that it paints a picture of who God is and his love for us. It's read a lot at this time in Advent season as we talk about Jesus entering into our world. Um, so let me go ahead and read that again, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Reunion family, in this Advent season, there are three things that we see in this text that I want you to remember about love. The first is that love initiates. Love, God comes to you. Listen to what John 1, 11 says. It says, he came to his own. The way most of us, I think, understand God is woefully insufficient. Most of us think that if we're lucky, God will kind of offer up love and as he's keeping a tally of all the things we've done, all the ways we've gone wrong or um, not followed what he wanted us to do, he's going to be gracious and forgive our shortcomings and sins. And as amazing as the the forgiveness we find in Jesus truly is, Advent season is a reminder that God's activity in our lives just includes so much more than that. It includes forgiveness, but it goes way beyond that. In verse 11, when it says, Jesus came to his own, we see God initiated. He is always the one who initiates. He meets us where we are. And that's great news because it gives us two things, humility and hope. Humility because this means that no matter how dope you think you are, (laughs) you're only there because of God's previous acts in your life to lead you there. The Apostle Paul, he says it like this in Philippians 2, verse 13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. That means it's God's grace that draws you. It's God's grace that fills you. It's God's grace that motivates you, leads you, enlightens you. There's an author by the name of A.W. Tozer who says it like this. He says, Christian theology teaches the doctrine of grace, which briefly stated means this, that before a man or woman can seek God, God must first have sought the man or the woman. Before a sinful man can think a righteous thought of God, there must have been a work of enlightenment done within him. We pursue God because, and only because, he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. And in John 6, 44, Jesus says it himself, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. All is of God, For all, for excuse me, all is of God, for God is always previous. And when we understand that God always initiates, to me, it's a cause of great humility, but it's also this cause of real hope, that it means that we're not left to ourselves, solely to rely on ourselves to do the things that we want to do, to follow him, to give ourselves over to him. You know, the one consistent thing in all the mistakes that I've made is me. (laughs) Um, And maybe you feel that too, that like, you know, you want to follow God, but it's hard. It's not as easy as, as much as we'd like, reading the next best self-help book. It's not as easy as just mustering up more discipline or getting more grit. We need a savior. We need a light that the darkness cannot overcome there's this Danish theologian and philosopher who I'm going to butcher his name. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. There we go. Thank you. Kierkegaard. And um, we don't use that name in Harlem a lot. Anyway, um, he did, Danish as he is, he did um, write something recently, or I read it recently, something he wrote a long time ago that has been sticking with me a lot. And he says this, to this effect he says you have loved us first O god alas we speak of it in terms of history as if you loved us first but a single time rather than that without ceasing you have loved us first many times and every day of our whole life through when we wake up in the morning and turn our soul toward you god you are there first You have loved us first. If I rise at dawn and at the same second turn my soul toward you in prayer, you are there ahead of me. You have loved me first. When I withdraw from the distractions of the day and turn my soul toward you, you are there first and thus forever. And we speak ungratefully as if you have loved us first only once. Man, okay, God initiates, love initiates. He has chosen to love you, and he has chosen to come to you. The next thing we see in John 1 about love is that love is costly. Um, Last week, last weekend, I was awakened at like 5 in the morning to the noise of ear-piercing screams coming from outside my bedroom window, and, you know, in New York City, you sometimes have to kind of discern, is that like a fun scream? Is that a bad scream? What's happening? Um, And so, in the midst of my sleepy confusion, I kind of make my way out of bed, and I look out the window, and I do, in fact, see that this is a bad scream, that one of my neighbors, a woman, um, is on the phone with 911, along with the security guard who had been on detail that night in our building, And I guess apparently she had tried to park her car and a man had tried to attack her and rob her. And so thankfully he ran away because she fought back and they are talking and I'm watching as the police are arriving and their ambulance is checking her out. She was okay, but obviously very shaken. And I was very disturbed, obviously seeing all of this, not knowing exactly what to do. Um, But it also reminded me of this documentary that I watched last year on HBO, uh, it's called The Witness, and it's a story from 1964 in Kew Gardens when a 28-year-old woman named Kitty Jean Invesi was heading home to her apartment, and she was assaulted on the street um, before she made it into her building, and she cried out, help, help, help me, You know, he's attacking me, he's stabbing me, um, and there's a lot of debate still about what exactly happened, but we know that a lot of the lights in the building kind of went on as neighbors turned on the lights to see what was going on. She was, say, she was screaming, she was saying, help me. Um, but ultimately, no one came down. Not one neighbor came out. And when you think about why, I'm sure it's because coming down, coming out would mean risking your own life putting your own self in jeopardy. You become vulnerable when you come down. Nobody ended up coming down and the assailant actually did come back and, um, and killed Kitty, which is just absolutely terrible. Um, but I couldn't help but in the moment of what I'm seeing on my own block, think about my own self and like, what would I have done if I heard screams? Would I have come down? John 1 tells us that when Jesus, the Lord of all, the Lord of heaven, the Lord of the universe, heard our cries, he came down. He made himself vulnerable. He didn't just come down the way people would have at the risk of his life. He actually came knowing it would cost him his life. And because he came, because the word became flesh. He was vulnerable. The word became killable. It's, I mean, it's incredible. And this is why Paul says in Romans 5, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love, love costs. The final thing I want to highlight from John 1 is that love seeks to understand By stepping into the human experience, Jesus knew and knows everything his people feel. Have you ever mustered up the courage, maybe, to share something really vulnerable with somebody? Um, Maybe it's something from your past. Maybe it's something you're struggling with. um, And you were kind of met with a cold response. Maybe you didn't, like, get the, wow, that's hard, that you were looking for. Or maybe you got the quick Christianese response that was like, well, you know, God is good all the time, and he'll never give you more than you can bear. You know, that's tough. That's tough. At our core, I think we all want to be known and understood. At our core, so much of our darkest moments are the times when we feel like we're the only person experiencing whatever it is that we're going through. The disappointments, the anger, the pain, the unmet expectations. So to me, one of the most fascinating implications of Jesus coming to earth is there in verse 14 when it says that he dwelt with us. He lived with us. He became flesh and thus became familiar with every single thing we feel. He understands you because he's been where you've been. He knows everything about you. You know at Christmas time we often read Isaiah 9:6 where among many names Jesus is called wonderful counselor. And if you really think about it like the best counselors are those who've been through something and they've come out on the other end. And then they talk to people who are going through a similar thing and those counselors they just they understand, they empathize. Jesus is that wonderful counselor because the word became flesh and dwelled among us. There's this um, memoir called When Breath Becomes Air. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it, but it's by a guy named Paul Kalanithi who was a neurosurgeon. And he spends the first part of his book kind of talking about his process of going through med school, of seeing patients, of diagnosing different issues, and then at a certain point, he himself was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And so then he goes from being physician to being patient. He goes from calling on patients and giving them answers to being the patient, sitting there, feeling some kind of way when a doctor doesn't have a certain kind of bedside manner, feeling some kind of way when his questions go unanswered. Um, He was the patient, on the table. When John 1 tells us Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, it's telling us something that no other religion can say. No other religion dares to say that God who created the universe has been on the table. Hunger, loneliness, grief, rejection, betrayal, torture, injustice, he has experienced it all. So what does that mean? That means have you been betrayed? He has too. Have you been lied to? He has too. Are you broke? He was too. Are you facing death? So did he. There's so much that we experience in this world, and Jesus, he understands it all. He even understands that feeling that you might have had where you prayed with all your might for God to move, and it feels like God denied the answer to the prayer. He sat on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understands. So the implications of all this is that, again, I want to reiterate, God, God initiates, love initiates, that love is costly, <laughs> and, and that love seeks to understand. Um, that's important for us to know as we go about our relationship with God, how we relate to him. It's also really important for how we do the second part of what I read in Matthew 22 about loving others, which is just in Jesus' mind so unable to be linked with loving God. The two go hand in hand, how we love him and how we love others. And so we have to think about it. Does, is the kind of love we show to others, is it the kind that initiates? Is it the kind that makes itself vulnerable? Or is it the kind that holds its cards close and thinks about self-protection and doesn't want to let down the guard and doesn't want to be the first to apologize? Is it the kind of love that costs something? John fifteen twelve, Jesus says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And love is costly, as we talked about. It costs you something to love a broken person. Think of all your most important relationships, whether that's with your parents or your friends or your spouse or your beloved dog, even. <laughs> You'll be hard-pressed to think of a scenario, a relationship that doesn't cost you time, energy, and sacrifice. And, and ultimately, man, love seeks to understand what does that look like in our relationships with other people? Well, I think it's about listening, listening really well, offering up that gift that so many of us want at our core, which is to be understood. So many times we listen for the sake of responding. We listen with ears to say, "Oh, I got it, I got it, let me get this, here we go. But when's the last time someone shared something with you and you looked in their eyes, you gave them the gift of your full attention with your phone put away, and you said, I get that. I hear you. I see you. I feel that. I'm with you. Now, all of this, loving God, loving others, again, when we try this in our own strength, we discover we can't. We naturally, on our own, left to our own, we fall back to unhealthy ways of relating to people. It's why we need Jesus' love to flow into us, and then therefore, it can flow out of us. And so... My prayer for this Advent season is that we would remember God. He is coming to you, even if you feel like, "Yeah, I don't have it in me to turn to Him." He, He came to you. He comes to you. He's always there. He's always first. He's waiting. Um, he did it at a great cost, and He understands all that you're feeling. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for your love that comes down, your love that comes down to us every single day. And God, we pray that this week would be an opportunity to rest fully in that love, to turn our souls toward you and know that you are there ahead of us, waiting, eager to experience just a deep, rich love with us. Um, And Father, we pray that moments where we just rest in that love would be transformative. That it would um, not only enrich our relationship with you, experiencing that, but that it would flow out to the people around us. That we might in fact be known as a people for how we love others. We thank you and we praise you.